Our gospel reading this morning continues on in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're reminded again that at the beginning of the passage, Jesus is revealed to be our beatitude, our blessing, and that calls us to be blessing to one another and even to ourselves. And last week we heard that Jesus is our promise and our challenge and calls us to be salt and light to the world, to help others taste and see that God is good. And then in the second half of the scripture, Jesus turns to the discussion of the law. Sorry you had to be here for the sermon on the law, but we're glad to have you anyway. The law is maybe not the most romantic or most exciting, especially when you see some of the topics that Jesus tends to cover today. But Jesus is pushing us deeper into the law. And so he says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to complete the law. Throughout the history of the Bible and the Old Testament, their understanding of God's law evolved and it was reinterpreted in each generation to make sense to the world that they were living in that day. Now everyone's heard the the famous the famous part of the Gospels where Jesus says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, well, an eye for an eye is the law of reciprocity. And it was actually a law that wasn't intended to be barbaric, but was a law of constraint. That if you do something bad to me, I can't do anything worse to you. That if you steal something from me, well, I take something back of equal value, of equal measure. It was actually a law of constraint in a barbaric time. And Jesus takes that law and takes it to the next level. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone strikes you on your left cheek, turn also and offer them your right. Because Jesus is concerned that we don't live to the letter of the law, but the intent of the law. And it's revealed that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. I think that's the way that we have to hear passages like this, to make sense to us today when we talk about adultery and divorce. Oh, it makes for a good pulpit-kicking sermon, as we would say in the hills of Tennessee. But many of us have experienced life in all its pain, and all its joy, and we've heard sermons that are used as a cudgel or a weapon for a minister or a tradition to say, this is God's will for you, rather than to hear Jesus saying, come, enter into the law more fully, not the letter of the law, but enter into me. I am the fulfillment of the law. So let us listen for the word of God today. Understanding that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the lens through which we make sense of God's will and God's love for us each and every day. From Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I think Jesus here is pointing us to the realization that it's not just our actions that can be violent. It's not just our fists. But our words and our deeds can have the same effect as physical violence on another person. And that we can't truly be reconciled to God. We can't truly be reconciled to ourselves until we metabolize our anger and release our contempt and try as best we can to achieve reconciliation with those around us. Even realizing that the reconciliation may be letting go of the fact that the problem may never work itself out but metabolizing the anger and letting go of the contempt. And then he goes on. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has always has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is where you would kick the pulpit. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, in the day, in first century Palestine and Israel, in the near Mideast, well, men for the most part, could do what they wanted to do with no repercussions from the culture or the state. And Jesus, in this passage and the next, is reminding them of their obligation, that it isn't simply enough to be faithful in action, but also in our hearts. And he uses hyperbole. And so he continues... It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that if anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, again, Jesus uses these words to speak to a first century audience. Where in some cultures in the ancient Near East, divorce was as simple as the man saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Friends, if divorce were that easy these days, well, my marriage would have ended a long time ago. But if a man decided to divorce a woman, because a woman could not divorce a man, she could be left without any support whatsoever, any status whatsoever, and any children had no status either. Women were often seen as little more than possessions. And so when Jesus says these prohibitions against adultery and against divorce, 
He's wanting to say a word of protection to the most vulnerable in the society's midst. And so if we preach a sermon that goes willy-nilly this way or that way, we're missing the point of what Jesus is saying. That we are to be accountable to one another and subject to one another. And that we're to love one another even at the end of a relationship. And just because I'm living up to the letter of the law does not mean that I'm fulfilling the purpose or the spirit of the law. A divorce is never good news. But it can provide, as sadly many of us know in our lives or in our families, it can provide the best of bad options and lead to new and renewed life when none was possible otherwise. It pushes us to think today about the nature of mutual care and what does it mean to have life, as Moses says, and to have it abundantly. All right. It doesn't get any easier from here on out, but we're almost to the end. Again, you have heard it said, those of ancient times, you shall not fare Uh, swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Some of us can't grow them at all. Rather, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no, Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Again, an urge for us to allow our actions to speak and that our fidelity is to God and to one another and we don't have to swear by this or swear by that. That let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Friends, in all its complexity and all its mixed messages, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there's a church in Minnesota, and they'd done just what every church was supposed to do. They preached the gospel faithfully, and they raised their youth as best they could, and it's a similar story to what I told last week, but as time went on, they weren't growing bigger. They were growing smaller, and the time came for the Methodist church in the area to to redo things, and they came under the wing of a larger church, a more prosperous church, and Well, the relationship worked all right for many years, but the membership and the attendance dwindled to 26. And the powers that be decided that that 26 was not enough because the neighborhood was growing around them again and there were new families moving in and new houses being built and, well, we're going to have to do something. And at some point, communication broke down between the church in the suburbs, in the church, in the big city. And not only did communication broke down, but anger and resentment began to formulate and it began to bubble up and then the press got involved. Not the right kind of press, but the wrong kind of press. And the headline that came out was, Church Kicks Out Old Members, Asks Them to Find Another Church. Now, I think the plan had been, whether it's a good plan or not, I'm not going to be standing in judgment, was to close down the church, bring in a new minister, and reboot the church with a fancy new upgrade, and have those 26 members for the three or four months that the building was being refurbished and the new minister was getting installed to come and worship in the city center. 
But that's not what was heard. Instead, what was heard is that we don't value you because your hair is gray or there's no hair at all. And we don't value you because you don't bring in enough money. And we don't value you because there aren't enough people in worship. And we're just going to shut you down. Now, that's not what they intended to do, but that's what happened. And now they're in the middle of a big mess and it made national news in America. It even made news over here that church kicks out old people and asks them to find another church. Now, how is that living up to the law of God? Well, they have the authority to do that, obviously. It's the Methodist church and it's a centralized authority and they can shut it down. But it's a really good case study. And what happens when our communication with each other breaks down and our anger begins to bubble and our contempt gets the best of us. And we find that there's brokenness all around and brokenness in the press and we get all the wrong attention. I've read the letter from the senior pastor to the small congregation, and I see his heart trying to make things right, and by golly, I feel for them all. To say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law is to invite us into a relationship with the commandments that were given and the, and the best advice that we have, and to See them through the eyes of Jesus and his choice for people. So when Jesus says, be reconciled to your neighbor and drop everything and go achieve whatever measure of forgiveness you can, we're to see it as invitation and not law. To remind ourselves that sometimes the best we can hope for is reconciliation with ourselves A great preacher named Joy J. Moore talks about her early ministry in the church that she was serving, and she preached a sermon on just this text today. In the following week, she was to invite a lay minister to come and deliver the word. And the lay minister gets up into the pulpit and gets ready to deliver her sermon. And she closes the book. And she looks out into the congregation. Because her family and another family had been feuding for years and the tension between the two families had ripped the congregation apart and deadened the life of the spirit in their midst. And she looked out and she spied that person that she had borne contempt for for all those years and she didn't kick the pulpit. She said, how can I preach a sermon to you today when our families have been fighting for years, will you forgive me? And will you let me try as best I can to forgive you? And Joy J. Moore says that after that sermon, her life was transformed and the family's lives were transformed and the congregation's life was transformed. Oh, it wasn't easy going, but they began to talk to one another for the first time in decades. And healing anew began. Living into the law of God is messy. And it isn't always easy. And it calls us sometimes out of our comfort zones to embrace a grace 
that reminds us that God's choices for us always trump our choices for God and that grace is always free but seldom cheap. And that even in lives as broken as mine and maybe as broken as yours, reconciliation is possible. And so is laughter. (laughs) So friends, this day I simply say to you again, in the Sermon on the Mount, we remember again that Christ is our beatitude. And so I ask you, How is Christ blessing you in your life this day, this week, this year? And how can you be a blessing to someone else? Because we also learn in the Sermon on the Mount that Christ is our promise and our challenge and that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Not will you be the salt of the earth and can you be the light of the world or you used to be the salt of the earth and you used to be the light of the world, but you are now in the midst of your life, salt and life, and you are called to help the world taste and see that God is good. And we need you regardless of your biography, your biology, your chronology, or your ideology. And we also learn today that Christ is the fulfillment of the law that calls us to go deeper into what is said, deeper into what is lived, and as far as it is dependent upon us to metabolize our anger, And let go of our regret and our contempt. And to remember the words that began our service. See what love God has for us. That we might be called children of God. Because that is what we are. Amen.